Welcome to Cyberspectives, uh, and we're very fortunate to today to have Lillian Ablin uh, as our guest. Uh, Lillian is an information scientist at the RAND Corporation, and she conducts technology and policy research on a whole range of cyber-related uh, topics, including cyber risks to the supply chain, uh, zero-day vulnerabilities, cyber insurance, uh, methods for zero-day vulnerability detection, uh, and uh, quite a few other things. Lillian uh, also is a recipient of a black badge from uh, DEFCON, which is an extremely high honor in the uh, in the security community. And in addition, she recently, uh, earlier in 2018, provided congressional testimony at a hearing before the House Financial Services Committee uh, in relation to uh, the motivations of cyber threat actors and their use and monetiza monetization of stolen data. So Lillian, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to spend a few minutes uh, today talking to us about your work on uh, cyber. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me here. So we'll just get right into the questions. Uh, so you've done some really important and influential work in, uh, as I see it, at least two areas of cybersecurity. One is markets for stolen digital data, and the second is markets for zero-day vulnerabilities. And I'd like to start with your work on markets for stolen digital data, and, and that was the topic that you testified uh, at the hearing I mentioned just a few moment, moments ago. Would you be able to provide a, a, a general overview of the, the different categories of threat actors in that space, the overlap between them and so on? Absolutely. Um, so a lot of my research looks at the, uh, the ecosystem of cybercrime and the ecosystem of data breaches, the attackers, the victims, uh, and the defenders. Um, last March, March of 2018, I testified, as you mentioned, before the Committee on Financial Services, the Subcommittee on Terrorism and Middle East Finance. Um, they wanted to know what happens after a breach. Uh, data gets stolen, and then what happens to it? How does it get monetized? One of the key things I wanted to get across to the committee members, um, in addition to how money gets or how stolen data gets monetized, was that there are different types of cyber threat actors and how one responds from a defender's point of view um, uh, to a data breach or to an attacker uh, can differ based on who the different cyber threat actors are. So a large part of my testimony focused on describing and distinguishing four groups of note uh, that carry out cyber incidents or attacks. So these attackers or cyber threat actors um, can be grouped by their sets of goals, motivations, and capabilities. And the four groups that I note are cyber criminals, state-sponsored actors, cyber terrorists, and hacktivists. Uh, so let me go through them really quickly, each one. Uh, cyber criminals are motivated by financial gain. They care about making money as quickly and efficiently as possible. They want access to our personal financial or health data in order to monetize them on cybercrime black markets. Cybercriminals uh, often operate behind anonymous networks like Tor, the onion router. They use encryption technologies and digital currencies like Bitcoin uh, to hide their communications and transactions. State-sponsored actors receive direction, funding, or technical assistance from their nation state to advance that nation's particular interests. State-sponsored actors have stolen or and exfiltrated intellectual property, um, sensitive personally identifiable information, uh, and money to fund or further their es uh, espionage and exploitation causes. Um, in rare cases, data stolen by state-sponsored actors appears 
on underground black markets. Instead, that data is usually kept by the attacker for their own purposes. Uh, and um, cyber criminals and state-sponsored actors are of greatest concern to businesses and the government. So those are really who folks should be thinking about, policymakers, organizations, uh, companies. The other two are cyber terrorists and or cyber terrorism and hacktivists. Um, cyber terrorism unites two significant modern concerns, attacks via technology and cyberspace and traditional terrorism. Now, in theory, Cyber terrorism consists of a politically motivated extremist group or non-state actor conducting a damaging extreme cyber attack to influence an audience, force a political change, or cause fear or physical harm. Now, to date, there have been no cases of terrorists using the internet to actually carry out cyber attacks, um, although terrorists do certainly use the internet for a number of purposes. Um, but what's been done that's been attributed to cyber terrorism is really more akin to hacktivism. And that brings us to the fourth group of cyber threat actors. Hacktivists are typically motivated by a cause, um, political, economic, or social, from embarrassing celebrities to highlighting human rights, to waking up a corporation to its vulnerabilities, to going after groups whose ideology they don't agree with. So that summarizes kind of the four types of cyber threat actors that are involved with stealing data or conducting uh, attacks or espionage campaigns online. That's, re that's really interesting. Thank you. And I guess uh, one question would be is whether there are, uh, do, do the lines between these categories blur in the sense that what clearly, you know, somebody who might want to commit an act of cyber terrorism by, you know, shutting down a large chunk of the electric grid is, is very different in this ecosystem than somebody who's trying to steal credit card numbers. Uh, but I can also imagine that some of the things that, that might fall under the umbrella of what uh, cyber terrorists might try to do might also be the same kinds of tools that a nation state uh, might want to have it at its disposal uh, for, you know, for its own purposes as well. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head with that. So there's, there's definitely a blurring of categories. Um, which makes attribution very difficult. Um, but there's this blurring of categories as, as you mentioned, these tools for hacking as they become more available and more accessible. So really any type of threat actor can purchase the tools like exploit kits or botnets uh, as a service offerings or uh, things that can go after, um, um, you know, industrial control systems or other types of, you know, computers that are used uh, widely by, you know, a whole, a whole, whole um, but, but uh, country or organization. Hopefully it's not, I mean, I, I assume you can easily buy tools to do some of the, the smaller things, but hopefully you can't just easily go online and buy a tool to shut down a country's financial system, or can you? Well, hopefully there's uh, layers of defense um, in place so that one can't actually get to those systems. Now, if those systems are um, bespoke systems, if they are not necessarily based on, you know, Windows 7 operating system or some basic, uh, some operating system that is um, common, then that's kind of an additional layer of security, I guess, security by obscurity. Um, uh, in that particular case, it's, it's down to the intent, it's down to the motivations, and this is where we where we distinguish very clearly the different threat actors, because not all threat actors are going to want to go after a financial institution and try to jump through those hoops. Um, uh, back to the cyber criminals, while their motivation is financial gain, they want to make money as quickly 
as easily, as efficiently as possible. So they'll often go for the low-hanging fruit. If they see that there are hurdles to get through, um, they might jump to the next target. Right. They'll, they'll, Counter they'll, that it's with... Like, it's like a bank robber who, who robs the bank with, with less security as opposed to robbing the bank with more security, right? Right. Uh, more security and perhaps a bigger payout, but it's easier to get into the less secure place. Counter this with state-sponsored actors who, in some cases, they may be going after a particular target. And um, they, with you know enough resources, um, people, money, time, they can get to the target no matter what. Um, I, I say it's not possible to be 100% secure. Uh, the goal instead is to make it difficult for the attacker, again, in terms of resources, time, money, people, uh, effort. Right. Okay. And when we talk about markets for stolen digital data, uh, it's important, of course, not only to consider the sale of the data, as you do, uh, but you've also looked at another aspect of that ecosystem, which is the tools used to obtain the data in the first place. And you did a really nice job. I read through the, uh, the written version of the congressional testimony, and you did a really great job explaining that, that ecosystem. I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the types of goods and services that are on the market that somebody who in intends to later sell stolen digital data can use to obtain it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, cybercrime markets, so these, these black markets for, we, we call them the hacker's bazaar. They're the markets for cybercrime tools and stolen data, and these are the ones that traditionally we would think of cyber criminals using to buy and sell stolen data or to buy and sell the tools to carry out and facilitate um, cybercrime attacks. That said, there can be the other types of cyber threat actors that um, participate or that are interacting on these markets. But these markets offer a diverse slate of products for all phases of the full cybercrime lifecycle from the initial hack all the way through to monetizing the stolen data. So a couple examples include things like uh, tools to help gain initial access onto a target. So that might be an exploit kit, along with the payloads, the parts and the features of those payloads. Uh, for example, a feature that makes it so um, it, it will obfuscate that that payload came from that exploit kit. So if a antivirus signature is created to detect that payload, uh, that obfuscation will allow it to get through the antivirus um, detections. Uh, there are services to help scale or deliver a payload, uh, support products to ensure that infrastructure is set up, or to provide cryptanalytic services like uh, you know um, decrypting things, uh, breaking codes, breaking captures. And then there's also considerations for how to manage the stolen goods. So there's uh, kind of money laundering services, if you will. Um, th the product slate keeps evolving with the technology. What is, whatever is new or novel for the traditional consumer, so mobile devices in recent years, cloud computing technologies, social media platforms, that offers new entries for attack. And since there's uh, more of those devices, there might be less security as they're initially on that um, uh, elicits a counterpart exploit on the black market. So it sounds like um, a, a thriving ecosystem. A thriving ecosystem, absolutely. Really interesting. And then, so to, to the extent that you can um, answer without divulging information that wouldn't be appropriate to make public, uh, I have to wonder, where are these markets located? Are there are these online bazaars where, you know, if you're in the know, you, you, you can go there and, and transact and, um, the other 
obvious related question is, is, is given that, you know, people who are participants in this market, the buyers and the sellers, presumably aren't particularly anxious to, uh, to leave a lot of digital footprints. How do people pay uh, for these uh, services that you're, that you're mentioning? Right. Well, so a, a couple things, and, and this kind of goes back to the different tools or services uh, offered. Um, I like to say that, you know, all you need is an internet connection uh, and a device and you too can be a cyber criminal. Um, there's not any need for any savvy. Uh, there are as a service offerings where you can hire someone to do kind of whatever you want. So there, there are places where people need to have um, high connections. They need to have a uh, high technical ability in order to kind of operate on these markets. But for a lot of it, you know, any, any Joe or Josephine can really participate in these markets. Um, in recent years, there's been uh, more gravitation towards uh, communi methods of communicating with each other and conducting business transactions that offer anonymity or make it harder for law enforcement to find. So in particular, TOR, which I mentioned before, it stands for The Onion Router, T-O-R. Um, it's a service that one can use to access websites in the dark web, um, and it's also a way to browse the internet uh, semi-anonymously. So... It's, been, it's been around for quite a while, right? It has been around for a while, um, but in recent years, it's uh, the use of Tor uh, in order to have uh, a kind of host black markets or dark uh, markets sites is um, is is more um, is more common. Uh, way back in the day, a lot of it was on IRC chat channels, um, but yes, Tor in itself was developed by the U.S. Navy uh, decades ago for communicating um, and uh, not at all for, I mean, TOR is a dual-use tool. So it can be used for nefarious or illicit or illicit purposes. Right. So, um, it's, so it's, it's perfectly reasonable for a dissident in an authoritarian country to use TOR to mask their conversations, which could be what we would consider innocuous conversations. That would be a, a presumably a good use, but then these illicit uses would be, you know, for example, to conduct cybercrime. Absolutely. I mean, I think Tor is a great tool, personally. Um, so, so a lot of the markets are on the dark web, found through services like Tor, uh, although many uh, other kind of products or enabling products are found on the open web, things that we can search for uh, easily. So, for example, um, I found Google Guides on how to purchase stolen credit card data and where the pl best places are to go get it. Um, I've watched YouTube videos on how to use a particular exploit kit. Um, I joke that all that's missing is a Yelp for uh, which ones are the best sites. Yeah, um, although yeah, there are, it's it's an illicit economy, but it's it's nonetheless an economy. So I would imagine that things like reputation play a role in the ability of of you know the market participants to charge higher or lower prices, just like in any other market, right? Absolutely, uh, there's there is honor among thieves in this case. Uh, reputation matters a great deal. Um, uh, a lot of these marketplaces, a lot of the websites and the forums look similar to uh, something like an eBay or an Amazon where each seller has reputation points. They have, you know, feedback. And so people can go see if they're selling dud, dud information or if they're selling good, good credit cards that are, you know, uh, haven't been shut down by banks. Um, and so the, the dud sellers will get kicked off um, an administrator's website or a forum or marketplace pretty quickly, especially if they're selling, um, you know, bad data. Uh, people want, uh, you know, administrators of these forums and these markets want people to come to them and use them as their, you know, one-stop shop. 
Right. So they don't want to get a reputation as having been a forum where people, you know, got ripped off in, in quotes by sort of buying a tool that was or buying data that was actually, wasn't actually useful or something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And how, how, do, how do people pay in these markets? Right. So, so um, uh, most black market sites accept digital cryptocurrencies as payment. So the, the appeal to digital cryptocurrencies uh, are things like um, semi-anonymity um, and then, you know, other security characteristics. Currently, Bitcoin is a popular choice. Um, although there's been some recent volatility of the cryptocurrency markets, um, there's also been an increase in the theft of digital currency wallets. Uh, and also some notable takedowns by law enforcement of Bitcoin exchanges. So it's it's not the only choice. There's other um, digital cryptocurrencies that are being used uh, that are rising up in popularity. Um, but I've also seen sites that accept web money, e-gold. Uh, I've even see, seen um, PayPal uh, little buttons that you can press or PayPal. You know, we accept PayPal um, oh, so uh, banners. So these, some of these are... Some of these folks are just taking money via PayPal, right? That's taking take accepting payments from PayPal or using PayPal. Is that right? Yeah, perhaps not the smartest choice in tracking payments, but um, you know, people, uh, especially in the in the cybercrime ecosystem, they want to get paid, and so if they can get money, um, that's you know, that's uh, a good thing. And, and just out of curiosity. How do you go about gathering information you know, that, in other words, doing primary research about these markets? And maybe I've seen too many movies, but I'm imagining that, that maybe it involves engaging in encrypted digital conversations with market participants. Uh, so how do you figure all this stuff out? Yeah. Uh, so uh, for my research, I've gathered, I, I use kind of three different paths. Of, of information um, or three different research information gathering paths. Uh, the first is uh, I in, I've interviewed several folks, um, I've spoken with several folks involved in the black markets for cybercrime. Um, so these include people who are brokers and vendors, um, but then also folks who are in law enforcement who are um, uh, in the trenches in the markets themselves. So they're getting to see what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis and they can kind of give me their first-hand account. Uh, and then there's also academics who themselves are firsthand in the markets to observe kind of the the market dynamics and the kind of the economics of of the whole um, the whole world. The second uh, second is that there there is a growing amount of lit literature on the topic. And third, I am a practitioner. I like to get my hands dirty. I like to be hands on. So um, I certainly did access some of the markets and forums to look around. See what was there. Um, nothing illicit. Uh, you know, just simply observing to see if what I was hearing, reading, uh, was was truly the case. And, and it was. was it? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Wow, it's fascinating. Fascinating work. Um, if it's okay, let's move on uh, to your work on uh, zero day vulnerabilities. And uh, in 2017, you co-authored and, and published through RAND an important report uh, that was titled, I'll read the title, it's quote, Zero Days, Thousands of Nights, The Life and Times of Zero-Day Vulnerabilities and Their Exploits, close quote. And one of the key points you make in that report is that characterizing zero days as, quote, alive, close quote, or dead, quote, unquote, is oversimplistic. And, and I found that to be a really interesting observation. Can you explain what those terms mean uh, and why is that an oversimplification? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so let me just kind of take a step back and um, 
explain the the zero day vulnerabilities in, in the case that perhaps your listeners are just to get everyone on the same page essentially. Um, so as you may know, all software has bugs. Some of those bugs are security vulnerabilities. Some of those security vulnerabilities are exploitable, meaning that someone can write software to infect a system, steal a data, uh, take control of a computer, or disrupt normal operations. A zero-day vulnerability is one that the vendor doesn't know about so that there's no patch or software update to fix it. Now, these zero-day vulnerabilities or zero days are extremely valuable, as you might imagine. Whoever is in position of possession of one has a lot of power. Um, because the vendor is unaware about the vulnerability, it's essentially kind of an open door into someone's system. Now, a challenge with examining zero days is that publicly available information about them is sparse. Uh, if you uh, are talking about a zero-day vulnerability, it's kind of no longer a zero-day vulnerability because then the vendor knows about it and they can issue a software update or a patch. Um, and also, people who find zero-day vulnerabilities don't necessarily want to tell everyone about them because then, um, again, they won't be only known to them. They won't be only privately known. I was able to. Um, add to the you know, limited existing body of research on zero-day vulnerabilities using a data set I acquired of information about more than 200 zero-day vulnerabilities and their exploits, over half of which are still considered zero-day. Yeah, I, I can't help but ask, if, if you're allowed to say, how did you acquire such a gold mine of data, or, or maybe you're not allowed to tell us? Uh, so I, uh, you know, over the course of several years, I cultivated a research connection with a um, with an entity that um, does vulnerability research, develops exploits, uh, and then participates in the markets for zero-day vulnerabilities. You know, earlier you asked about how I did my research in the um, cybercrime black markets of, you know, um, secretive communications or um, Digital, encrypted digital conversations with participants. Uh, essentially the same sort of stuff here uh, to communicate with these folks. Um, but the data set that they had is very similar to what a, a sophisticated private use group or nation state might have in their, um, in their possession. So it was fascinating to take a look at this group of zero-day vulnerabilities. These are ones that might be used by governments or militaries for offensive operations or defensive testing, they're, um, you know, highly valuable zero-day vulnerabilities. And so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, you know, with this, with this data set, my goal was to create some baseline metrics on the characteristics of zero-day vulnerabilities in order to help inform policy discussions. Until now, a lot of research um, that's been valuable, um, it, it, it's, it's been valuable, but it's also been based off of either simulating data or, uh, you know, manufacturing data or looking at um, vulnerabilities that are already known, so uh, that are already kind of in the public sphere, so not considered zero day still. And then you, you had mentioned, uh, I think my earlier question uh, that, it, you know, you talked about alive, dead. Why is that an oversimplification? Yeah, so here. So now uh, kind of background on the data and zero days. So with this data set, uh, I kind of had three dimensions of zero-day vulnerabilities that I examined. There's three main research questions. And the three dimensions are life status, longevity, and collision rate. Life status, which kind of talks about alive or dead, or live or dead. Um, this answers the question, given a vulnerability, 
who knows about it? And why do we care about life status? Well, it helps determine whether vulnerability is still considered a threat as a zero-day vulnerability. So I took the data and I started by classifying as, as classifying each vulnerability as either alive, meaning vulnerabilities that are unknown to the public and only known privately and therefore still considered zero-day, or dead, those vulnerabilities that are publicly known and therefore no longer considered zero-day. And right now, um, a lot of people talk about vulnerabilities as either unknown and known or alive and dead. So once I looked at my data as alive or dead, uh, I noticed that there were things that didn't quite fit into alive or dead, and there was granularity in each of those topics. For example, um, uh, among the vulnerabilities that were alive, we separated them even further into two different categories. Living vulnerabilities, um, those are vulnerabilities actively sought out by defenders, and immortal vulnerabilities. These are ones that will remain in a product in perpetuity because the vendor no longer maintains the code or issues updates. So for example, vulnerabilities in uh, Windows XP are considered immortal vulnerabilities because Microsoft no longer maintains that code. And it's important to distinguish what kind of vulnerability you're dealing with because um, those living vulnerabilities are actively sought out by defenders. Those are ones where um, researchers are looking for those vulnerabilities and they're ignoring this class of immortal vulnerabilities. And then uh, in terms of things that weren't alive or dead, we, we had this class of vulnerabilities that we called zombies. They're kind of quasi-alive, quasi-dead. Um, due to code revisions, they can be exploited in older versions, but not the latest version of a product. So we realized that vulnerabilities are dynamic in their zero-day status, and that both those in offense and defense can really benefit from being more granular, more specific when discussing zero days. So for example, those who are defensively oriented could think about searching previous versions of code bases that are still in use due to zombie vulnerabilities. And a strong case can be made for incentivizing upgrading to new versions of a piece of software as end-of-life projects can have dormant immortal vulnerabilities in them. That's a fascinating, uh, fascinating taxonomy. That's that's really really interesting. And and you briefly mentioned a term longevity. Uh, and I when I was reading your zero day report, I noticed that there was a really interesting section on, on that topic. Can you explain a little bit about what uh, what longevity is and, and what what are the statistics on zero day longevity? Absolutely. So longevity was the second thing that we looked at, and this answers the question. How long will a zero-day vulnerability, or how long will a vulnerability remain in private knowledge before becoming publicly known? Um, and why do we care about longevity? It's an important question because uh, it helps give a sense for how long zero-day vulnerab zero vulnerabilities of this caliber exist. And this caliber meaning those that are used by governments, nation states, militaries, they are hard to find. Uh, complex and really valuable zero days. And so knowing longevity um, could help those planning operations against hard targets know how long they could plan out for, the likelihood of that vulnerability um, uh, dying or becoming publicly known. And it can also show vendors and security companies how well they're doing at keeping their own devices secure. So a short average lifetime might indicate that they're doing a good job finding and patching the vulnerabilities in a short amount of time. And a long lifetime would mean the opposite. In order to figure out the, you know, we looked at the short lifetime, the long lifetime, and then the average life expectancy of, of vulnerability. In order to do that, um, we, we borrowed a method from insurers and actuaries 
and we plotted the survival probability of our data. So uh, to give you an example, kind of in the human sense, um, we looked at in the human population, this might be something like the probability of someone having a heart attack over time. In our data set, it was the probability of a zero-day vulnerability dying and becoming publicly known. So we essentially anthropomorphized our vulnerabilities um, uh, for the purposes of this research. So what we found was that the average life expectancy um, for a zero-day vulnerability was rather long, almost seven years. In fact, that's, that's kind of how we got the title of the report, Zero Days, Thousands of Nights, because it's something like 2,521 days uh, or nights, um, which equates to 6.9 years, which is rather long. Yeah, that's much, much longer than I guess I, if I, if I had guessed, I, I would have guessed something shorter. Right, right. And so, uh, you know, this, this, um, this can be seen as kind of a big deal. Uh, so, and it can impact a business's risk profile. So, for example, um, since zero days last, almost seven years before detection, companies may be amassing huge amounts of liability if consumers get hurt using their product. And so they might want to, you know, cons companies could reevaluate how much they spend on, on what uh, for vulnerability detection and removal. It can have business implications. It can have uh, national security implications. Um, it's, uh, it, it was pretty incredible, incredible to see the life expectancy be that long. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, of course, we're used to see, hearing and reading about how businesses are often incentivized to just sort of think, you know, you're just driven by a quarter earnings reports on a quarterly basis. And you, you juxtapose that with you know, a time scale that you've mentioned of, you know, really seven years or something. It's um, the economic incentives are, are, are complex with respect to businesses, right? Right. And keep in mind that this is a certain class of vulnerabilities that we're talking about. This, these are not the vulnerabilities that can be found easily with fuzzing tools or, uh, you know, easy web scanning or other kind of scanning tools. These are ones that require um, dedication and, uh, you know, some major technical ability in many cases to find and then create uh, exploits for. Yeah, so I'm thinking, that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking these business, you know, the regular legitimate businesses that are publicly traded, you know, uh, how, how much incentive do they or do they not have to be spending time looking at their code releases from five years ago, you know, to try to get ahead of the discovery of, of a zero day that might be buried in there? And I guess the, the answer is, in often, often cases, that they don't have that much of incentive, you know, given the time scales. Um, I guess let me move on to another question. Um, in this market for zero days, the global market, who purchases these? Who purchases these things? Is it governments? Is it cyber criminals? Is it companies trying to identify weaknesses in their own systems? All of the above. All of the above. Um, but there's not just one market for zero days. Um, they're broken up into different types of markets, and um, there actually are quite a few classifications of these markets. The way that we distinguish them. Um, are by who the initial buyer is, uh, the public versus private nature of the vulnerability, and then the intended use of the vulnerability. And we actually separate the whole zero-day market into three groups. Um, we call them the white, uh, white market, the black market, and then the gray market, or sometimes it's called the government market. Um, those in the white market seek to um, immediately turn their vulnerabilities over to the affected vendor and then have them used for defensive or security purposes. Um, so people who search for vulnerabilities within their own company's products, uh, as well as those who participate in bug bounties 
or uh, vulnerability disclosure programs fit into the white market. Um, the black markets are where zero days here are for criminal use, illicit purposes. Um, they aim to keep the vulnerabilities private. Truthfully, the black markets, uh, zero day vulnerabilities are r more rare in the black markets. What you see more uh, in terms of vulnerabilities are known vulnerabilities. You might call them a one day or a two day vulnerability. Um, what's more common in those black markets are what we discussed earlier, the stolen data, uh, the tools to carry out cybercrime attacks. That third market, the, the gray market, or sometimes we call it the government market, in that market, the vulnerabilities remain private, are used for either offensive or defensive purposes, and they might eventually be disclosed to the affected vendor, um, though that's not necessarily guaranteed because they're typically first sold to government, uh, military, or defense contractor. And I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess one of the, if you're a purveyor of such uh, vulnerabilities, you have you, know, you can have an asset which has an enormous value, but that value also, I mean, the risk is 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 that it could you know you the the the, the quote benefit of waiting longer is you might have more systems that it, that it could be used to compromise, but the risk is that if it gets discovered independently by somebody else and then you know patched you know by uh, somebody who's you know who's who's not trying to exploit it, then your your product the value of that product can go to zero. Is that also true? True. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and that's really more in the, I guess, the, the gray and then perhaps to what extent it's, uh, it exists in the black market. In the white market, you really want to, um, typically it's just sold back or shared back to the affected vendor kind of as quickly as possible. There's not necessarily a benefit from waiting a long time. Um, with the exception of some, uh, sometimes there are competitions, kind of hacking competitions where you can get money for a particular vulnerability and, and typically people get paid more for those, um, more during those uh, competitions. In the gray market, one of the risks is that the seller, so the vulnerability researcher or the exploit developer who's trying to sell to um, the government or the military or whoever else, um, does not necessarily know what the customer wants and the customer can't necessarily tell them what they want. Um, and so it's a bit of a guessing game. And so if a vulnerability is found and, um, uh, and it's not wanted right away, it can sit on the shelf and collect dust and exactly what you said, either be found by someone else and therefore, you know, poof, there goes the usability of that vulnerability as a zero-day vulnerability. Um, or it just sits on the shelf because it's, you know, never needed, never wanted. Um, so there's certainly risks um, in, uh, in, in actually all of the markets in, in finding a vulnerability. That's really, your observation there, I think is really interesting in the sense that, you know, highlighting the fact that there can be less uh, shared information between buyers and sellers about what they, if, for example, if I want to purchase, if I want to purchase a new car, I, go to, I can go to a car dealership and tell the salesperson exactly what I want and he or she can then, you know, I, th there's, there's a lot of clarity. Uh, going both directions uh, in a purchase, at least in theory, or the, the, at least the potential for that. But it sounds like in this environment, there can often be less clarity because people are, are going to um, not necessarily say what they're looking for and the sellers may not want to disclose everything they have and so on. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, well, let me ask a, a related question, which is in, in uh, bug bounties, which uh, companies often offer to incentivize people who discover vulnerabilities to disclose them uh, to the company that makes the software concerned. But I guess my question is from an, a purely economic perspective, 
are these bug bounties cost competitive? And what I mean by that is if someone has discovered a vulnerability and only cares about the money, they don't care about the ethical or legal implications, um, don't they have a larger economic incentive to sell the vulnerability for the most money possible on the black market as opposed to uh, turning it over to a company in exchange for a bug bounty that, that may be just a lot less dollars-wise than if they sold it on the black market? So in theory, yes. Uh, and and I might just amend your uh, amend your question uh, to to be um, uh, sell it to the gray market versus the the white market sure, um, sure. because truly the, there's there really seems to be very little on the black market um, so yes there more money can be made on uh, the gray market so what we found was that a per and and just to reiterate I would put bug bounties into the white market here. Um, we found that the purchase price for a zero-day vulnerability on the gray market was estimated to be 10 times the purchase price of a zero-day vulnerability on the white market. So then why so would anyone sell it for, to the white market? Well, it could Again, be assume, I, I should clarify, so I don't, I don't assuming the, 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 per, the hypothetical person in the question, which is someone who doesn't care about the ethical or legal implications, if a purely economic actor, why would they sell it to the, to the white market? From a purely economic point of view, if you have a vulnerability that's wanted by the gray market, that might be something that you would try to sell to them. But the types of vulnerabilities that are on both, that are wanted by both of these markets are actually quite different. Um, uh, certainly companies, um, uh, those who run bug bounty programs and vulnerability disclosure programs want those really difficult to find vulnerabilities, but they also want vulnerabilities that can be, you know, easily found, that can be easily exploited. And those aren't ones that are necessarily going to be used um, by the, the gray market uh, customers. Um, but there's, there's a number of reasons for the disparity in price. That, you know, the 10 times more in the gray market than the white market. Um, so in the white market, researchers stop once they found the vulnerability or once they've created what's called a proof of concept exploit, just kind of proving that this vulnerability can actually be exploited. Over on the black, on the black market or, and in the gray market, really, um, researchers there need to create a fully functioning exploit, uh, which can take, you know, 10 times the amount of work. Uh, that fully functioning exploit needs to be able to be used um, in the wild. Sometimes uh, it needs to be able to be run on all different um, types of modes or through different types of infrastructure. I see. So, and so, so that, yeah. So it's it's not it's it's not it's it's it, there is a logic that it costs more in the gray market because you have to do more before you can sell it or or or, or monetize it. Yes, and the vulnerabilities in the gray market are often more complex, deeper in code. Um, harder to find and then harder to exploit than those bought and sold in the white market. So there's a reason for that 10 times. So if you have a vulnerability that's won by both markets and um, uh, you're not motivated by, or your only motivation is financial gain, then the gray market would be where you would get more money. Um, but, you know, it often takes someone who is highly skilled at finding the vulnerability and then creating that fully functional exploit in order to participate on the gray market. So uh, in many cases, Participating in the white market is a, um, you know, a great place to participate, and that, and there are some people who their skill level just goes up to that. Um, now, the white market does try to pull in security researchers by making the case on ethical grounds, uh, citing responsibility to disclose, um, offering recognition in lieu of high payouts, and then also kind of the 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 will to do good and to to protect the internet, as you, if you will. Wow, this is a, an absolutely fascinating uh, set of set of observations. 
Uh, well, thank, thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Lillian Ablon from uh, the RAND Corporation, uh, who's doing some just really, really important work. So really appreciate your taking a few minutes uh, to speak uh, with us. And I'm sure people will be really, really interested to hear what you've had to say. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.